Eric said we are carrying on in our series through the book of Acts. Acts is a kind of Luke's gospel part two. It's the Empire Strikes Back of the gospels. Um, Luke is carrying on the story of what Jesus is doing now that he's uh, resurrected, he's come back, shown himself to the disciples, he's been teaching them, and then Jesus has ascended into heaven and rules and reigns from a heavenly throne. And now it's the, the disciples who are going out and fulfilling the mission that Jesus gives them, which is to, um, to preach the gospel and to make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Can we get them in the right order? Um, so today we're in Acts chapter 2, and just a, a disclaimer, we will spend most of this morning in the Old Testament. Um, but it's, it's with good reason, because um, Luke was writing, and, and writing into a context where people were, were, were really aware of the Bible story, the sweep from Genesis right through to uh, the Minor Prophets at the end, and this whole uh, massive amount of history uh, kind of gets brought into the New Testament in various points and in various ways. And for us to understand the story of Pentecost, uh, we need to look back and dig into some of these um, formative stories, some of these early stories of, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And, uh, and so we're going to do a little bit of that this morning. But let's read uh, our text. So Acts 2, uh, verses 1 to 13, it'll come up on the screen behind us. Hopefully it's, it's easy enough to read, but I'll read it as well. So it says this in Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are, who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. So it's an amazing story and potentially one um, that we're, we're a little bit familiar with. Pentecost is, uh, is a story, it, it, it's, a, it's a word, I think if I went out and said, what does Pentecost mean? People would say, oh, you know, it's the early church and the, the, the spirit comes, tongues of fire, weird languages. It's that story. That's what Pentecost means to most of us. Um, but we, we're going to ask, like, uh, like the, the people who are hearing the tongues this morning, what does this mean? Because if you look back at verse 1, you'll see it says, when the day of Pentecost came. Pentecost already existed before this day. 
Pentecost isn't the, I mean it is obviously now, we think of it as the time when the Spirit came on the early church and birthed um, the, the early church, this ragtag bunch of uh, fishermen and outcasts, tax collectors, um, you know, the down and outs of society are, are swept up in the story of God's saving grace and filled with the Spirit and move on to proclaim the gospel. That's what we think Pentecost is, and it is that now. But it, it wasn't for them. It already was something. And that's really important because it has a meaning and a history and, and an understanding that explains some of the stranger stuff, like those tongues of fire and that rushing wind and why they all speak in different languages. There's a meaning there, and, and to understand it, we need to uh, look back at what Pentecost meant to, the, to these guys, to these disciples, to these men and Jewish men and women who had, were celebrating. So Pentecost is already a thing. In fact, Pentecost is the Greek name the, the Hebrew, for the Hebrew festival Shavuot, which Jews still celebrate today. Shavuot means weeks, Pentecost means 50th, and you'll understand why in not very long. Um, but it was a festival, it was one of three pilgrimage festivals. So you had um, Yom Kippur, Passover, and Shavuot, Pentecost, where you would come. If you were a, a God-fearing, Torah-observant, law-abiding Jew, you came to Jerusalem to sacrifice at the temple. That was what Shavuot was, and that explains why all those God-fearing Jews are there. They have to be. They're at the temple to give a, it was a grain offering, it's a harvest festival, so like all the grains, you've, you've swept in all the grain, and what you do is you, you, you take the best of it, the first of it, to the temple and say, thank you God for this abundance, thank you God for, for all of this that you've given us. Um, and so that's what they were there doing. But it had another meaning, and it had an important meaning to the disciples and to the, the Jews, and for us, an important story that goes behind it and gives significance to this moment in the upper room with the tongues of fire and the rushing wind. Uh, you see, it's interesting to me that for such an important and pivotal story for the church, the birth, the foundation uh, of, of, of the church, where the disciples went from scared hiding to bold and proclaiming the gospel, is a pivotal moment. Luke gives it five verses. And you'd think that he would give a little bit more description to something so important. But the reason, I think, is because he expects these, this backstory, these allusions, these um, themes and ideas from the Old Testament, he expects them to do the heavy lifting. So when you read Tongues of Fire, you go, ah, I know what that is. When you hear the rushing wind, you go, I know what that means. Oh, this is that story on repeat. This is that theme from the Old Testament coming to bear, coming to fulfillment. So it's really important then that we, we explore it and that we dwell upon it and think about it. It's part of the reason why we do deeper into acts and we, we want to spend time together to look at the scriptures and, and, and really ask you know, questions about what it means, what it meant for the readers and then what it means for us today. So this morning we're going to briefly remind ourselves of the Exodus story, which is uh, one of the key themes and motifs that finds itself cycling through scripture. If you, it's kind of like an opera. I've never heard an opera, but I know this illusion true. Better, better yet, it's like Lord of the Rings. If you've ever watched the film, Lord of the Rings, you've got the, the theme of the hobbits. And I know it well, it's like... That one. 
it comes in, if you listen to it, it comes in all the way through the, the movie at key moments to remind you these are just little hobbits that come from this tiny little place called the Shire. It's, it's, a, it's a motif that keeps coming back through to remind you. And that's what Exodus is. It's a, it's a motif, a story that keeps coming through scripture to keep reminding you. Um, and if you want to go deeper into that, I highly recommend this book. It's called Echoes of Exodus by Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson. And it's tracing the themes of redemption through scripture. So I highly recommend this. If you want this, talk to Josh. He'll, uh, he'll buy a load of copies. I thought you were going to give him yours. <laughs> Josh has got loads of spare copies to give you them. Or he'll buy some in bulk. You can uh, do a church order. I highly recommend it. Super easy to read as well. But let's have a, a brief reminder of the Exodus story. If you've seen Prince of Egypt, you won't need it because you'll know. It's my favourite film. The Israelites... So you've got Abraham, Father Abraham has Isaac, and then Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob is renamed Israel. Then Israel has 12 sons, and they are uh, the, the birth of the nation of Israel, the Israelites. But they grow up in, in Egypt, under slavery, under Pharaoh, so they are an enslaved nation in Egypt, oppressed by Pharaoh. And, and uh, through, over the course of time, a guy called Moses is called by God. He, he meets God in a burning bush. And God says, Moses, I don't like what's happening to my people. I want you to go and, and, and get them out. Tell Pharaoh to let them free. To which Moses does. And Pharaoh says no. And so then we get the, the ten plagues. We'll skip them and go straight to the last. The tenth plague is the worst one. And uh, it's, it's the death of the firstborn uh, male of cows and sheep and people as well. The, the, the horror of this moment uh, is, is not even enough. The, the promise, the prophetic promise that this will happen is not even enough for Pharaoh. Um, but so the 10th plague comes and the Israelites are warned, they're spared the death by uh, being told to take a lamb, a perfect spotless lamb, and, and kill it, sacrifice it, and put the blood on the doorposts. Only this will allow the, the judgment of this tenth plague to pass over. Only this will allow um, them to go free. It's a life for a life, a blood offering. And of course, after this tenth plague, the Pharaoh finally gives in and allows the enslaved nation of Israel to leave. And they're guided by a pillar of fire at night, a pillar of smoke in the day, out through the desert. And, uh, and Pharaoh pursues them, he hunts them down, he has a change of heart and decides, no way am I letting these guys go free. Hunts them down. So God parts the Red Sea and the Israelites walk through the waters and then Pharaoh and his army are swallowed up um, by the water and destroyed in the flood. Then Israel wander through the desert, they're provided for by all sorts of miracles, bread and water. Um, but they're, they're free from slavery that they were in, but they haven't yet reached the promised land. They're not yet quite a nation. And this is when the pillar, the pillar of fire that had guided them comes to rest on a mountain. It stops and rests and comes down on Mount Sinai. And this uh, mountain of fire and smoke um, that descends on the, on the mountain starts to talk. It's God's presence and it begins to speak. Now, this has been about 
50 days since the Passover. It's 50 days since they smeared the blood on the doorposts and the angel of death Passover. It's about 50 days since they were rescued from the sword and spear of Pharaoh's army. And when the pillar of fire led them safely through the waters towards the promised land. At this moment, 50 days after Passover, 50 days after God's great rescue, we get Exodus 19 and we read this. This. Uh, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses up to the top, and Moses went up. So, at the foot of the mountain, God's people hear his voice. It's the sound of thunder and lightning. There's flames and smoke, and God invites the nation that he just saved to come and meet with him. Predictably, they say no. Uh, they're terrified, so they send Moses up on his own. And so Moses goes and he comes down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. This is the Shavuot story. This is the festival that the Jews are in Jerusalem to celebrate. Passover was 50 days ago. Pentecost means 50 days. It's a 50-day later festival. In fact, Shavuot means weeks, and weeks means it's a week of weeks, which is 7 times 7, which is 49 round it up and we're at 50 and that's they now we understand why it's when it is it's 50 days from passover that you get pentecost it's uh, it, and they're linked they're they're inextricably linked you you have um the lord rescues his people saves them from slavery and then he comes and visits and brings his presence into their midst so what i want to do with the remaining time that we have is to look at three ways that these two stories, the story of the, the first Pentecost, as it were, the Shavuot story, this end of Exodus, where the, where the Lord comes down and gives us commandments and speaks to his people. I want to compare that with this amazing story that we have in Acts and see what the links, the comparisons are, the, the, the parts that, that are contrasted, that are different, and also the parts that remain the same. And to do that, we'll look at um, the power of God's presence, the, the God's promises of power, and also power for all God's people. I went with a P theme for Pentecost. Um, so, the power of God's presence. In Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, God's presence is powerful. We heard this morning, actually, Josh spoke of, again, another instance where God meets with Moses in the mountain. And it's this powerful moment. It's this awe-inspiring uh, situation where the sound of rushing wind comes, the, the sound of an earthquake, the, the, the trembling of, of natural phenomenon. Things like volcanoes and avalanches and landslides kind of, they're there in scripture to give a picture of what it's like to be in God's presence. It's important to notice, I think this is key, in Acts, 
he, Luke says there was like the sound of a rushing wind. Mm. It wasn't a rushing wind. The papers didn't rustle. The windows didn't blow open. They didn't all hold on to their hats. There wasn't a wind as such. There was the sound of. And I think what Luke is trying to get at is that something like the sound happened. But it, it was like we don't have words to describe what it's like to really be in God's presence. And that's what we see in Scripture in the Old Testament is that these are like... They're like our best attempts at explaining what it's like to be in God's presence. Ultimately, what connects them all is that it's awesome and terrifying. And, and, and most of the time, when people meet with God in the Old Testament, they just, boof, fall down flat and like try not to move. And, you know, they really... Um, I remember, I don't know, Chloe won't like this story, but I remember when... I'll tell her now, she's not here. Uh, I remember when we went... <laughs> Dinner <a> cold off. <laughs> we went to we went to the uh, we went for a, a walk of Engels Berlin. Have I said that okay? Well, look, that's a place. Cheers, Nina. And we were walking up there, and uh, having a nice time. And she we turned around and we were looking back at the view, and she there was a snake on the path, and it was like this physical reaction to seeing a snake. Mm. She she tried to climb me like I was a tree to get <laughs> up off the ground. When when we see things that are, there's this physical body reacts to it, and that's what happens so often in the Old Testament, in, in coming into the presence of Almighty God, let alone a snake, terrifying as though they can be for some of us. When you meet with God, wow, it's powerful, yeah. and it should be. Yeah. There's a few just references, really, really quickly. We'll look at Isaiah 6. Um, Isaiah is a prophet who is speaking much later than the sex of this story, um, and yet he has this powerful encounter with God. He says, at the sound of their voices, that's the, the voices of angels, not even God, just spirits that are ministering around. It's so powerful. He says, at the sound of their voices, doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple, the vision that he was having was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among the people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Aware of his, his humanity in the presence of God's divinity. And it's, I mean, it's like, I'm down on the floor, please. Woe is me. And then again in, in 29, uh, verse, chapter 29, he says, In an instant, this is actually the Lord speaking, speaking to Isaiah and talking about how his presence is going to come and what his presence is going to come like. In an instant, suddenly you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder, with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. Ezekiel 3.12 says, When the Spirit lifted me up and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. These are just three of many pictures of what it's like to meet with God's presence in the Old Testament. And you might see then the, the link that Luke is, is, is painting for us in this Acts Pentecost moment. The, the rushing wind, the tongues of fire, it's meant to say God's presence is here. God's presence is here. He has come. He's in this place. Even in the original Shavuot story, we read it from um, just a minute ago from Acts 19, and then it goes on in verse 20 to say, in chapter 20 rather, uh, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance. This 
surely contrasts then with the image we see in Acts. Because although there's a rushing wind, although there's these tongues of fire, there's no fear. It's not like Exodus 20 at all. It's not like Isaiah in the temple, really. Uh, it strikes me as really strange. Luke obviously wants us to see the connection between this story and Shavuot. He obviously wants us to see the connection. He wants us to know that God's presence is come. But it's not like in those other times in the past, there's something that's different here. The disciples are not afraid. The fire that rests on them, it's not a consuming fire. It's like a candle flame. It's a picture I have. I love candles. I think the author to the book of Hebrews actually explains this really well. And I really, it's very dense, and Hebrews is like dense. It's a lot of stuff in there. But this is it's helpful because he picks up this exact contradiction. God's presence for, for, for generations for the Israelites was something to be feared. It was terrible, terrifying, awesome. Amazing to look at, like the Grand Canyon, like, like Niagara Falls. You want to go and stare at it, but you're aware that if you get any closer, that's it, you're gone. But for the disciples, for us, that's not true. And why is that? Um, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 24 says this. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, to gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further words be spoken. Because they couldn't bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. Just to say, that was when they were all camped at the mountain, that's one of the things God said was like, I'm gonna invite you up, but until I invite you up, don't touch the mountain, you'll die. If an animal walks to it, it'll die. That's how holy my presence is. That's how, that's how powerful I am, that there's just got to be separation. But the writer to the Hebrew says, we don't come to this mountain. The sight of that mountain was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you, believer, you, Christian, you, brothers and sisters in this room, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, you've come to a thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to sprinkle blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And I know that's dense, and I know there's going to be a lot of questions. You can be like, wait, what? Blood of Abel? Yeah, I know that, but just what the author is trying to say is that where God's presence used to be a source of fear, and rightly so, for people who are sinful, people who have failed, people who are just like human, like every single day I don't live up to even my own best ideas of what it means to be human. Like every day, let alone a beautiful, perfect, holy God standard. It's, it's a place of fear, I think. It should be. That's what the Bible teaches that it is. And yet, what the author to the Hebrew says is that for us, for us now, somehow, it's a source of joy. In fact, the writer to the Hebrew says that we can approach boldly the throne of grace with confidence. 
What changed? What happened? And it's not because God has become in any way less terrifying, less awesome, less all-consuming source of power and majesty. God is and evermore will be hotter and holier than a billion suns. It's that we've been made acceptable by the blood of Jesus. It's that we've been made acceptable. We've been made adopted into the family. We're welcomed into a relationship. We had a prayer meeting last night, Verity prayed. We've been welcomed into a relationship with the triune God, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We're now in the family. We've been restored to our purpose as those who walk with God. If you remember the Garden of Eden story, Adam and Eve, it says they walked with God. There was no fear, there was no trepidation, there was no nervousness, there was no, ooh, God's coming quick, look good. You know, it wasn't that. They had a true expression of who they were as humanity and, and, and perfect ease and confidence in God's presence. And that's what's restored to us through Jesus, the mediator, the, the bringer of a new covenant. There's a new covenant. Interesting, that Exodus story is the first, it's the old covenant, what we call the old covenant that we were, that God's people were under. And now we're under a new covenant in Christ. So, God's presence is now a source of joy, not fear. Next, God's promise of power. You see, there's many promises fulfilled or beginning to find their fulfillment in the moment of Pentecost. Um, there would have been lots of promises that we could look through and see how they, they find themselves in, in the Pentecost story. But there's one that I think is probably in the minds of most uh, of the, the disciples at this time and most of the early churches. They look back and dwell upon Pentecost and what it meant. Like what, remember what they said, the, the God-fearing Jews from every nation, they said, what does this mean? And I think the answer to that would be that this is a fulfillment of a promise given to, to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is an Old Testament prophet speaking at the, the end, the tail end of the Israelite story. And the context for that is, is again found in Exodus. Exodus 19, we read... God uh, speaking to the Israelites, speaking to his people, saying, I brought you out from slavery because I love you and I want you to be my people and I want you to represent me. He says, now, let's make a covenant. Let's make an agreement. Let's make some vows together. And he says this, therefore, if you will obey my voice, listen to me and obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. In other words, God wanted a people that represented him on earth. Who, and a, a priest is someone who like, introduces people to God. It's like coming and saying, here, have you met God? He's really awesome. Meet him. That's, that's kind of essentially, in a very crude way, what a priest does. And he wants a kingdom of people who say... I know the living God, but come and meet with him. He's really awesome. He's excellent. He's beautiful. He's fantastic. He restores our purpose. He gives us hope. He gives us freedom. But 
even though the God had just saved the Israelites, even as he makes this covenant with them, the Israelite nation are already failing their end of the bargain. In fact, whilst Moses is up the mountain, they're busy building a new idol, a new God to worship, a cow of all things, and saying, this is our God now. This cow saved us from Pharaoh and from the flood. And this pattern continues over and over and over again. The nation of freed slaves, uh, God's nation, they, they, they take the promise out and they have a king and uh, they continue to build altars and to worship different gods and to keep failing to live up to their end of the bargain. God said, you be my people, I'll be your God. And they just don't be his people. They just don't do that. They don't live up to it. There's high points for sure, but it's mostly lows. And so Jeremiah comes in with the worst possible job to tell them, sorry guys, it's all over. God's, God's going to bring in our enemies. He's going he's to scatter our nation. He's going to take us into exile. It's not good news. We've disobeyed him. We've, we've lost the plot. We've lost our covenant. We lost it somehow in all of this uh, idol worship. And so it's a doom and gloom message, but in the middle, chapter 31 is a verse of hope. It's a prophetic promise that finds its fulfillment in Pentecost. He says this, the days... The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. Do you remember Hebrews, a new covenant in his blood? The days are coming when I will make a new covenant. I w it won't be like the old covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand, led them out of slavery in Egypt, because they broke my covenant, even though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after this time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbours or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. This is, I mean... The promise of the gospel, isn't it? The, the, the Lord who's brought us out, he, he, he's going to forgive sin. He's going to forgive the wickedness of this rebellious nation. And our wickedness, where we've rejected God, where we've lived lives that have said, we don't need you, God. We don't need what you have to offer. We don't need your input. We can do things our own way. Thank you very much. But God says, I still love you. And I want you as my people. And so I've Forgive your sins. I'll make a way. I'll make a new covenant. A new covenant that doesn't rely on this law-keeping that you keep failing to do. It doesn't rely on uh, this, this system of sacrifices on altars in temples. It's a new covenant, a new set of vows, a new promise between me and you. And that the promise contain, the promise is that we'd have the law on our hearts. What does that mean? think is a very important question and a valid one to have. What does it mean to have the law on our hearts? Well, I think first it's important to stress that that doesn't mean being perfect. It's not about being perfect or dietary requirements, not eating bacon, making sacrifices. It's, it's not about that. One of the things that the Bible teaches us is that perfect law keeping was only achieved by one man, Jesus. The Israelites were unable to obey God's law, but Jesus fulfills it all. He was perfect. 
the perfect spotless lamb. And he put himself forward as an offering on our behalf. He's the Passover lamb, the blood on the doorposts for us. But this prophecy is still this word about the, the law in our hearts. Jesus fulfills the law, and so we rest in his perfection. We, we, we know that when uh, Jesus died on the cross, that he died in our place, that he took uh, the sin and the mistakes and the failures that we have ever made and ever will make, and he paid for them. And so we rest in that, but also his perfect law-keeping became ours, and so we then gain this, the, the New Testament calls it robes of righteousness. It's like exchanging the filthy rags for beautiful, silken, golden, I don't know, robes. No one wears robes these days. I say we bring it back. Um, but there's still, there's still something here in this prophetic word, the law on our hearts. What does that mean? Because I believe that that's what is fulfilled in this Pentecost moment. It's meant to be. Jeremiah says it's a contrast. There was this old covenant given on the mountain by Moses in the Exodus story, but there will be a new covenant given in a new way as the Spirit comes on the hearts of, 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 of his people. It's, it's a contrast. So we're meant to see it. I think this is the, the answer then. The primary way that we, uh, that the the law is written on our hearts is by being filled with the Spirit. It's, it happens at Pentecost. It happens as we open our lives to the influence and the, the, the working of God through the Holy Spirit. It's the primary way that you know the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is present in your life. It's not through fuzzy feelings in worship. Although I believe that as we come and sing corporately, we're going to act in certain ways. We're going to be exuberant and passionate. But that's not a sign of being filled with the Spirit. I don't even think that functioning in or working in spiritual gifts is what is meant here. Although, again, that's something that the Spirit does to equip us as the church, as the body of Christ. We, we have gifts from God given to us by the Spirit that enables us to function. And we should be pursuing that. We should be practicing. We should be coming and offering ourselves and saying, God, how can you use me today? But... Amazingly, as the children are finding out in kids' work, the main way that the Spirit is working on our life is by, by producing fruit, fruit of the Spirit. You see, Jesus said that the law of Moses was summed up in love God, love your neighbor. And Paul tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control and you can test your children if they can remember them later do you see that the spirit's work in our life is to produce a fruit that that shows itself in love and kindness and peace and gentleness and, and i hold my hand up this morning and say that's what i need i definitely need more of that in my life i definitely need god to work more in me to produce that fruit and that's what we the promise of, of Isaiah, the promise of Jeremiah, the promise of the Old Testament is that one day God's going to bring an influence to us, to bear in us fruit, that when we go out, and when we go out into the world, we look different, and we, we, we are that holy nation, that, that group of priests, as it were, that introduce people to God, because we say, well, 
My life's been changed. By who, they ask? By God Almighty. That's what it means to have the Spirit living in our life. So, to end, God's presence isn't something for fear. It's, it's, it's a place of joy. It's we are welcomed in because of what Jesus has done. Because of Passover, we get Pentecost. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we can be um, filled with God's presence. And God's presence is, is the Spirit working in us to equip us, to move us and our affections, but also to bear fruit in our life. But this is, and I think this is key, this is for all of God's people. This is power for all God's people. In the old covenant, it's Moses who goes up the mountain and everyone else stays down below. It's Moses who experiences that revelation of God, but everyone else is blind to it. At Pentecost, everyone is filled. The Spirit rests on everyone. Every man, woman in that place, every person of, of great nobility to the lowest standing, that ragtag bunch of fishermen, northerners, Galileans, it was like a byword for yokels and, and uh, hillbillies. They were, they were nobody. And in this moment, God's presence rests upon them. And that's the pattern throughout as groups of people that you would never have expected to be part of God's plan on human terms. God says, I love that person, they're mine. And that's true of us here today. We are all very different and we come from different backgrounds and there is no one here who can't be um, met with by God, who God can't work through and use powerfully to bless this world. In fact, I believe it's our destiny to have the power of God live in our lives to impact this world for good. So what it means to be a believer. So the mission of God is in the city. Our mission as a church is to love God and love Gothenburg. How are we going to do that? By being filled with the Spirit who will equip us and enable us to bear that fruit. But the, the, the command of Scripture is to, is to be filled, is to go on being filled, is to ask God, is to say, God, show yourself. Like Josh brought, Moses said, God, show yourself, show your presence. If you don't go with us, we can't go. And that's still the call of the church today. It's why we met for prayer last night. We pray to say, God, show yourself. Come and be with us. Because if you're not there, it's worthless. And so that's, that's uh, what we do. Just to end then. Um, I felt that one of the things that people might say, and again, it was something that brought up in worship is that we sometimes think that there's the, there's the people like Moses, King David, the disciples. We put them on a pedestal and we think this is what, you know, God would work through them but not through me. Maybe I can still be a believer but I, I couldn't be like that. And I think what interests me is that the Pentecost, it wasn't, it didn't fall just on the disciples. It didn't fall just on like, Peter, James, and John, the, the, they were called the inner circle. They were the ones that saw Jesus and the transfiguration. It didn't fall on them. It fell on everyone. And for us today, we should be aware that I think there's a hope that we should have. Because God desires to use all of us and to work through us and to speak through us. And those weaknesses, those past failures, future mistakes even, those dysfunctional quirks that we have... 
They're not obstacles that God needs to overcome before he meets us. They're not obstacles that he needs to overcome. They are the way in which he shows his power. They're the means in which he demonstrates his grace and mercy. Our weaknesses show God's strength. So wherever we are, however we're feeling, whatever we're aware of in our past, our present, thinking about for our future, God has a plan to use us and to work through us. We have to open ourselves up to that. Be willing to, be bold enough to say, God, use me.